Well, good morning again. Please open with me in your copy of the scripture to 1 John as we continue through John's first epistle, having started it last week. And this morning we'll cover verses 5 through 10. So read along with me as I read out loud. John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. The main point of this passage is that true fellowship with God requires conduct and self-awareness that reflect truth. True fellowship with God requires conduct and self-awareness that reflect truth. So after this stunning prologue, John's introduced us to the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. And he's articulated that he's writing so that we, his audience, or that you might have fellowship with us, that is to say. He turns to the body of the letter and starts things out with a bang. And frankly, a lot of us have heard this verse and this passage over and over, but I'm going to suggest, I'm stealing from Dr. Piper, uh, referencing another passage of Scripture. This is not exactly a beginner verse. This is not exactly a beginner passage of Scripture. And I think you're going to see why. You remember, John is telling them that which was from the beginning, what he has heard, and we get the same thing in different words in verse 5. The message we have heard from him, that is to say, from the lips of Jesus. The apostle John, from the lips of Jesus, heard this. That's what he's proclaiming. What is the message? Well, the message is that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This is this first piece of dualism. Remember last time I said things to watch out for as we go through John's first epistle here? The dualism, here's the first one. The light and darkness. Now immediately it causes us to ask, what does it mean that God is light? In John's gospel, he says that God is spirit. In 1 John 4, he's going to say God is love. Both of those actually end up being pretty straightforward. What it means to say that God is light is not quite as straightforward. And many commentators have pointed out John doesn't do anything to say exactly what he means. Light and darkness, and light in particular, mean a lot of things in the Bible in the New Testament that could be theologically true. Which one is it here, though? Light symbolizes, you know, yet light and darkness in the, in the Scripture are used to communicate death and life. You have the light of witness, the light imagery. You have the light of revelation. Light and darkness can refer to good behavior and evil behavior, holiness 
in sin. You have light and darkness used to describe openness versus secrecy, truth, truth and falsehood, sons of God, sons of the kingdom of God, and sons of the devil. All of that in the New Testament, and even the glory of God is described as light. Christ the person is described as light. So what, what version of light do we have here exactly? And I want to suggest that there is, like the, like the concept of truth last time, I said suggested that John has a thick aletheology, aletheology, the study of the truth. John has a thick understanding of light. It's, not, it's, 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 it's multifaceted. And it's foundational for 1 John. And so it will reward careful study to determine what exactly John is talking about. And then I think the rest of the passage will unfold. John has heard this from Jesus. And so you might think, ooh, oh, I know. There's a really good place where we might turn to to get some help for what's going on here. But before we do that, let's go ahead and read the second verse. And then we'll, then we'll go back. It says... If we say we have fellowship, and here's our word koinonia again. This one in belief and truth and spirit. If we say we have fellowship with God, while we walk in darkness, we are liars. And we do not, literally in the Greek, do the truth. We don't do the truth. There's John's thick truth right there. Truth is something you can do in John. Understood as living rightly the commands of God. We do not do the truth. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Another loaded verse. Before we tackle it though, let me say this is the first of three if we say if conditionals. I guess I don't, that was kind of superfluous. Conditionals. Okay? Conditional statements. First of three, and it may very well be that this is what some of the secessionists, those people who've gone, who went out, talked about them last time, have been saying. Some of these kinds of things. That's why John is responding to them. That's that mirror reading of the text. Why is he saying this? Well, because these false teachers were saying these things. And he's saying, if we say this, actually, here's the case. We lie and do not do the truth. So even right here, let me just say, before we even get a handle on light and darkness precisely, we know that because God is light, He doesn't have any darkness in Him. Okay, and just that's a simple piece of imagery there. There's no such thing as light that also kind of shines out darkness. It doesn't even make conceptual sense, right? Because God is light, someone claiming to have fellowship with them can't be also someone who walks in darkness. If they, if they are, and, and we're getting to like, we still haven't said what that means exactly. We just know that it can't happen. It's an anti, set as an antithesis. Because God is light, you can't walk in darkness and then be in fellowship with Him. What does that mean? Remains to be seen. But that's, it, it's mutually exclusive. Someone says that. Someone makes that claim. It's a lie. And they are not living in a manner that's consistent with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because that's what was proclaimed by him from the beginning. So in this case, what is light and darkness? John does not say in his letter. Explicitly. Not explicitly in the sense that we're looking for. But it will be helpful to look at what he heard Jesus say. 
He is proclaiming what he heard from the beginning as an eyewitness from Christ. And so we might, there, there are a few relevant places. We're going to just look at two. One was the second scripture reading. John 8, 12 would be another fine example. You can imagine John hearing this on the lips of Jesus. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, whoever follows me. So therefore, whoever follows the light, okay, whoever follows the light will not walk in darkness. And then it gives us a contrast that helps us understand the nature of walking in darkness, or at least its implications. They will not walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. Having the light of life and walking in darkness are mutually exclusive. And life in John doesn't mean being this side of the dirt with DNA and a pulse. It refers to eternal life. It refers to being in the one who is eternal life. Remember 1 John 1, 2? The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Life in John is life eternal. It's the most vibrant and lasting sense of life possible. And that is to be united with Christ, to have fellowship with God. So the person walking in darkness does not have that status. They don't have a light that brings eternal life. Okay, but there's more. So turn over with me in your copy of the scripture to John 3, just for one second. Everyone remember, everyone knows John 3.16, and you get down to 3.19, and people are like, but this is super important. This is super important. So what John says, this is the judgment. Here is how things have shaken out. Here's how things are, he says. 319, the light has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. That's why. Jesus enters in, bringing the fullness of truth in a person, but astonishingly, not really, People don't like it. Why? Because light exposes. It shines on things. Sin loves the dark because that's where shame is avoided and people are insulated from accountability. Oh, the darkness. If there's any question about this interpretation, we just read verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Why is that? Why would, oh, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus exposes. Let me ask you, just an illustration. I mean, just this harrowing thought. Imagine, maybe it's only harrowing for me. Oh, man. But imagine all of your, not just actions and the words that came off your lips, but the thoughts of your mind this week were projected up on these TVs for everyone to see. Who would want to sign up for that? Probably not you. Maybe you, but I'll say definitely not me. Okay? But that's what this is. It is the 
most raw form of exposure. The light has come into the world. It's exposed people and people hate it. And so he finishes, but whoever does what is true, and now we get John's thick truth again. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. He says a person who does the truth, by the way, same phrase, literally, does the truth, those who are living in light of Christ don't run from the light because their works are not like those who walk in darkness. Their works are done in God. Notice all works in one sense are done before God. But he's saying that this is carried out in God where there is no longer shame because they have been given eternal life and there's something that's going to happen. We're going to read about it in a second. That cleanses from shame. So that you can be exposed and you can have your soul laid bare. But it doesn't leave you wallowing and crushed in shame and an existential crisis. There was something that God did so that didn't have to happen. So I think in light of this, John 8, there's a couple other places we could turn, but we don't have time. In light of John 8 and John 3, let me give you what I believe is a very good synthesized analysis of light that you are going to see, I think, confirmed as we walk through this particular passage. Okay, so turn back to 1 John. Here's what I'm suggesting for you. God is the essence of goodness and righteousness who both exposes and demands the truth in those who have fellowship with Him. God is the essence of goodness and righteousness who both exposes and demands the truth in those who have fellowship with Him. So the illustration to get your, get your fingers around this is, is fire. Okay, what does fire do? Well, you might think it does a couple of things that that can't really be separated. You might think that fire um, lights up what's around it. It's the purpose of a torch, right? Or you might say that uh, fire is warm and hot. It can burn things, but it's really, you can't really separate them. You might use it for a variety of applications, but the point is the same fire that brings the heat brings the light. And the idea is that God, because He is perfect goodness, His goodness has an illuminating effect on people. His goodness has an illuminating effect. It is a standard up against which people are put, and they see how drastically below that good and righteous standard they fall. It's like I, some of you know I try to play golf. I don't know if I actually do, but I try to play. And this is, you, you even see this in our relationships we get to about the seventh hole and the strangers that I'm paired up with ask me what, what I do for a living. I'm a, I'm a pastor. And they're like, oh no, I'm so sorry for my bad language. I'm so sorry for that joke I told. What are they doing? They sense something. They've been exposed by someone they feel even kind of uncomfortable with. It's not just that they were exposed, but they were exposed by something that they were like, oh man, I really should do better. Something like that. Brought to light. And so what does verse 6 mean if you understand that God's goodness and perfection is kind of the fire that brings heat but also exposes simultaneously that it's saying this, if we're united with the righteous light of life and yet we're hiding our lives in darkness over here so that our evil won't be exposed, we're frauds. That's what it means. We're frauds. We pet our little sins and keep them in the dark. 
We aren't actually practicing or doing the truth because those who live by the truth come into the light. They come into the light. Or in the language of verse 7, they walk in the light. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light. I love honest biblical scholars That makes it sound like there's not a lot of them. But I love a moment of truth in a commentary. And again, this is what you get. What it actually means to walk in the light and to walk in darkness is not explained in this letter. Everyone reading this epistle agrees. Scholars do. And you will, if you go through it, you won't find it either. It is not explained what it means to walk in the light. Or in the darkness, which is why I said this is not exactly a beginner passage. I kind of front-loaded our legwork so the rest of the passage flowed, because I think now we're poised to give a fine answer to what it means to walk in the light. Walking in the light as he is, so walking in the light, let's say God's walking in the light, says he's in the light. So we are to walk in the light as he is in the light, is that we are to... Um, Walk before God in a way that is consistent with the truth about ourselves and with the truth about how we're supposed to live before God. To walk in the light as He is in the light is to walk before God in accordance with the truth, both about ourselves and our sinfulness, but also about how He has said we are to walk before Him. It means living a life exposed, a soul that is laid bare before God. While we strive to live Christ-like lives. So there's a moral element. And there is a self-awareness, honesty, exposure, vulnerability element. And if we do this, the first of two astonishing things happen. Remember, we're talking about having fellowship with God. If you do this, you don't have fellowship with God. And so here's what we read. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with God. Oh wait, that's not what it says. Isn't that what you were expecting through the flow of the passage? We're talking about how no, that's not what it says. It says we have fellowship with one another. That almost seems out of left field. When were we talking about one another? As we look forward in the letter, it may be that John is pushing back against some of these this false teaching that said because they have this special anointing of the Holy Spirit, they don't need other people. But regardless of precisely why he's saying it, John is saying, nope. One John scholar says, the more unexpected statement that mentions fellowship with one another introduces the thought that fellowship with God and fellowship in the Christian community are intimately related. Only when believers are walking in the light can we have fellowship with God, a fellowship that is embodied as fellowship with one another. The Christian who says, I have fellowship with God, so I don't need fellowship with other people, is out of step with biblical koinonia. John assumes the person walking in the light before God has fellowship with other believers who are also in the light. That's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens as a result of walking in the light, again, confirms our interpretation thus far. Those who walk in the light 
will have their sins cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Notice, this can't mean walking in the light, therefore, leading to forgiveness of sins, can't just mean striving to live a good life, because that doesn't result in forgiveness of sins. Striving to live a good life doesn't result in forgiveness of sins. Coming and bringing your sins and having your soul laid bare before God in confession and repentance and belief, that's what leads to forgiveness of sins. Walk in the light. Walking in the light leads to forgiveness of sin. Therefore, walking in the light can't just mean moral living. That's the idea. Thick understanding of life. Cleansed by the blood of Christ. As it's about, we're about to see in verse 8. That doesn't mean that you will not sin again. That's, that, that's what he's going to attack. It means that you don't have to live in the guilt and shame of your sin. When Jesus said, it is finished, he didn't say, I tried my best. My second rep is coming around, something like that. That's not it. Christ came and Christ died and Christ rose to cleanse from sin. And that is the promise held out in the gospel. So that we don't have to be scared of walking in the light. Both in terms of living rightfully before God, but also living in accordance with the truth about us. In terms of, uh, in light of who God is. And so in verse 8, John will say that the second if we, his second conditional. He says, if we say we have no sin. Again, it may be that that's what these false teachers are saying. I don't have sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This one Mercifully, is far more straightforward. The phrase literally, to have sin, is used only here in 1 John, but it's used four times in the Gospel of John. And it doesn't generally mean to just have sin, like it be a part of your life. It means something like be guilty, be culpable for sin. I'm not culpable for my sin. Maybe full stop, maybe after conversion, people disagree about what's exactly going on there. But regardless, John is, is quick to say, that's not true. It's just not true. If you say you have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. We do have sin. We are guilty of sin. And to think otherwise is self-deception. You have sinned. You do sin. That's going to set up the really good news. Of course, there's the good news is right here, in the, but you also get it in uh, chapter 2. That we have an advocate with Christ Jesus the righteous when we sin. And then the admonition is going to be, so don't sin. Because you have an advocate for when you do sin, don't sin. Well, more on that later. But he then gives us a contrast. He gives a contrast with saying we have no sin in verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, here's that word again, cleanse, from all unrighteousness. Now, confession of sin is very important, and yet, nevertheless, it's a topic that doesn't come up a lot in the New Testament. Did you know that? It doesn't. Um, there's about four other times where confession of sin comes up. 
in the rest of the New Testament. But again, we see our interpretation of light and walking in it confirmed. The idea is, if we acknowledge, if we say, that's the word translated confession here, if we tell the truth about our sin and about God, if we bring our sin into the light in honest exposure, we can be cleansed. We can be cleansed. That's not possible if we hide it. It's not possible if you stuff it away and rename it. It's not possible if you have it, you know, set cordoned off over here in the dark corner of your heart while you act like you come out and you're transparent about all the other things to give you credibility to hide these little things over here. That, that kind of hiddenness, that kind of sin is not going to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus in the run of life. Because only sin that's con, con, confessed and a disposition of confession, I should more accurately say, I'm not saying that if you forget to confess one sin, something like that, I'm saying, this is, this is someone who has come to Christ for forgiveness. This is someone who's coming to Christ for confession. And saying, I'm a sinner. I've sinned in ways that I, I don't even know. I've sinned in, time, in ways that I can't even remember. I'm confessing individual sins. I'm confessing I'm a sinner. I want, to be, I want my soul laid bare so that I can be cleansed. Because I can't bear this shame by myself. I just can't do it. I can't do it. And we get right to the heart of the gospel. That he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Again, John does not say anything about what God is faithful exactly to do. He doesn't. He's saying what he's, has been heard from the beginning. Okay? He's saying what's been heard from the, what has been told and what's been heard from the beginning. And this particular statement, this faithful, it occurs only three other times in the New Testament. They're all in 1 Corinthians, and they all have to do with God working on behalf of his people, for the good of his people. So it certainly stands to reason that faithful here is faithful to do what he has promised. We read about that. Well, we've read about it already, but we also heard about it in John, John chapter 3, that God loved the world in this way. Here's how the manner in which God loved the world. He sent his only son. To die an awful death. To rise from the dead in vindication over the grave. The first fruits of the dead. So that everyone who repents and believes the gospel can have eternal life. God is faithful to forgive our sins. He is just. He cannot just pass over sin. Give it a pass. That's why Paul says in Romans that God is the just and the justifier. He is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus made possible by the cross of Christ to cleanse us, to forgive, to cancel our sin debt. It's the idea of forgiveness. To cancel a debt that we owe, but we couldn't cancel ourselves. You know, imagine, I've used this illustration before, if I called my mortgage company and said, you know, my wife and I have thoughtfully considered it, and we are, uh, we're canceling our, our debt on this house. Thank you. It's silly. We can't cancel it. I can't forgive my own debt. It's not how it works. I need someone else to forgive my debt. And that's what, that's what John is saying Christ does. He can forgive our debt if we confess our sin. If we're willing to step into the light. If we're willing to be known and tell the truth about ourselves and God. Now verse 10 might have a wrinkle to it. Because it sounds very similar if we say we have no sin, and if we say we have not sinned, 
It may be that, well, I've not sinned at all. I've not sinned since I've been converted. Either way, I think it reads more like a summary. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so the consequence at this point is worse. We've been told that if we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. That Now we've been told that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. This one's worse. We're calling God a liar. We lie, we self-deceive, we call God a liar now because God has said, no, 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 you do have sin. I didn't send my son because you didn't have sin. He didn't go down there for life experience. You have sin. It makes God a liar to say that you don't. From the beginning, our sin has made it necessary to confess, repent, and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. The first words of Jesus' public ministry, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The person who claims they have not sinned does not have, it says, his word. So look at the parallelisms here, by the way, very quickly, 6, 8, 10. 6, 8, 10. We walk in, we lie and do not practice the truth, verse 6. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, verse 8. We make him a liar and his word is not in us, verse 10. Repetition and parallelism for a reason. There's a point here. We are sinners. We need redemption. We need cleansing. But guess what? There's someone who did it for us. So we can come into the light and be exposed without fear of judgment. As we walk in accordance with the truth. True fellowship with God requires conduct and self-awareness that reflect truth. True fellowship with God requires conduct and self-awareness that reflect truth. A truth revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Now when you think about applying this passage. uh, There is an embarrassment of options. I mean, man, there's so much that could be said about this particular passage. I take it that no one here, I mean, I try to preach to your people, not some generic audience. I, I take it that most people here will not be people who say, I have not sinned. Or I'm not guilty for sin. That would be a remarkable statement. And if that's you, uh, come talk to me afterwards and uh, I'll help you out with that one. Okay. But let me just say there's another way of not confessing our sin and the run of life, which is portrayed in this passage as saying we are without sin. You know, one thing I didn't mention is that the confess, the Greek, the Greek form there, is a, is a form that is something that's ongoing, something that's supposed to be ongoing. It's not just initial repentance. But the forgiveness and the purification is in a form that suggests that once that happens, it's over and done with. I confess my sins to God and I don't have to go, oh, I'm going to confess it again because it might not have taken. Oh, I'm sorry. One more time, God, please forgive me again for the exact same thing I've already asked for. No, the idea is we are to be confessing in the run of life. Yes, but once we're forgiven, we're washed clean. That's the idea. So what's what's the way that you and I might be tempted to not confess sin? Say we're wet without sin. What's a, what's a way that we could do that? There's two ways, at least, that come to mind. One is renaming our sin and contextualizing our sin. Let's, let's take both of them in turn here. 
I've used the illustration before as sin as both a smuggler and contraband. Sin is the smuggler who puts himself in the box, in the shipping crate, smuggles himself. But it's not just any crate. It's the crates with very legitimate labels on the outside of them. Very legitimate. Because it knows it is far less likely to be found there. What does this look like? Laziness and sloth seal themselves inside the crate of mental health break. Legitimate crate label. Very legitimate. That's where laziness and sloth say, hey, no one will go looking in this one. Because they're afraid of how it will look. Indulgence and excess hide in the Christian liberty crate. Irresponsible leisure spending hide in the self-care crate. Neglecting domestic responsibilities hides in the I'm just resting and having Sabbath crate. Routine lust of the eyes hides in the just admiring God's creation crate. Abiding bitterness hides in the righteous anger crate. All of these are legitimate things. Righteous anger is is a good thing to have. Admiring God's creation is a good thing. Christian liberty is a good thing. Taking care of yourself, that's a good thing. And sin knows it, and it will hide in there. You know why? Because as long as sin stays in those crates and it gets labeled like that in our own minds, it won't be confessed to God because we're deceiving ourselves. We're renaming it. We're saying, no, that's not sin there. That's not this. That's this. Can't you see the label? And those around you honestly are scared to point it out. Because you know what they're afraid you're going to do? And if you're honest, maybe perhaps you've done this. How dare you say that? I feel judged by you questioning this or that. You know what I'm really doing is this. Better, it's easier for your friends just to not say anything. Just hope for the best. That's where sin's going to hide. You're judging. Don't accuse me. That's the first way you and I might struggle to acknowledge and confess sin because we've named it something else and it's hiding in legitimate crates illegitimately. Self-deception. The second is by explaining away culpability for sin. We may have sinned, yes, uh, but it either wasn't a big deal or we aren't responsible for it before the context. Hey, you would have done the same thing. Hey, did you hear the stress I was under? Hey, but all these kids and all this, they're driving me crazy. Oh, but my spouse, blah, 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 blah. And we mistake the the precipitating cause for our sin coming out with culpability. You know, a little illustration here. Look, see when I hit this? Look, see the water comes out? If there was no water in here when I hit it, no water would come out. Oh, it's the kids. It's my work. It's my spouse. It's this and that. No, it's your sin that you're responsible for. There are contributing factors that aggravate and bring it out. But it's your sin. And it's so easy to say, well, look at this, this, this. And what's going on in my body and my tire? I haven't had my coffee. This, this, this. And point the finger to every single thing to either say, I'm not responsible or I'm responsible, but only to a very little degree. 
Brothers and sisters, we paint narratives around our sin, like we're the person going five mile an hour over the speed limit, getting hit by the drunk driver, and then saying, why is someone talking to me? Did you not see the circumstances? Why are we talking about my sin? I talked with a man earlier this month who was caught in adultery, admitted it. It was bad. It was a bad one. All of them are bad, but this was like a really bad one. Not in our church, by the way. <laughs> People are looking around. You don't know this person. Um, you know what he told me? He said, what I did was wrong. What was the next word out of his mouth? But when he said, people are making too big a deal about this. This kind of stuff happens all the time. This is what he's doing right here. I can downplay. I can contextualize. Oh, she was the one asking me these things. Oh, I was the victim of a seductress, is his claim. Know what you are? You're guilty, sin. This one has multiple faces. In the first instance, sin hides in the darkness to be, dark, to be enjoyed and undetected. And in the second, it presents itself in the light, but is something excusable, something is passable. And so my, my, my question to you is, which one's your tendency? We all, we all tend to do both. But do you have a tendency one more than the other? Ask yourself that. Which one, do you, which one would, would you say, I tend to do this one more as not bringing my sin to light? Are you someone who just hides or are you someone who brings things to light and then explains it away? My, I'll tell you right now, my tendency is the second one. You've got to know yourself. I'm not proud of that, but know yourself. I'm a rationalizer. I'm a rationalizer. Okay. I explain things away. Well, no, it wasn't, because actually what it was is this, that, and the other. But thing is, I know that about myself, and that is invaluable for holding your own toes to the fire, saying, Tyler, you're selling yourself a line right here to cover things up. That's my first... If you're a rationalizer um, like me... How would you know the difference between that crate containing sin and the label that it purports to represent? How would you know the difference in your own life between it being sin and it between being sin that's hiding in, uh, between it being, I'm sorry, legitimate or sin hiding in a legitimate crate? How would you know? And if your answer is, I have no way, even in principle, to know, nothing in place to you, you're done. You're just going to keep on sinning. You're done. It's just going to hide there. I have no way to discern the two. I'll hope for the best. And I'll talk about having a clear conscience when what I really have is a seared conscience. What about, what about the second one, though? What would it, if you're someone who admits things, but then you're very quick to explain why you're not really responsible for them, what would it take you to, what would it take to convince you? Just what would it take in principle to convince you that you are 100% responsible for your sin and no one else is responsible for your sin at all? They might be responsible for sinful actions that led to your sin. They were really mean, they were cussing me out, and they were being unloving, and then I. So they're responsible for their part. But what would it take if you're, if you're someone who does this, that you are 100% responsible for your sin? And as you consider those two things, you won't want to do it divorced from this last point here. 
the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. You know what hiding sin and seeking to avoid culpability have in common? The desire to avoid shame. Shame. Oh, it's an awful feeling. Shame. And this is where walking in the light comes full circle because shame dies a painful death in vulnerable confession. The desire to walk in the light says, I might be terrified, but I want to be, I want to be fully known. I want to be fully known. And it's this confession, again, that leads to fellowship with one another. What accompanies fellowship with God is fellowship with one another as a result of walking in the light. So the idea that I can walk in the light with God, but live a concealed life before others, is not a legitimate category in John's thinking. And So maybe that's the second question. Do you truly walk in the light before anyone else as a result of having fellowship with God and walking in the light. Some of you do, others of you don't. Let me just briefly address the second group because this is not some optional power-up for super-Christians. Three main reasons that I hear. The first is I don't need it. I don't need that kind of koinonia. But the problem is you do need it because you were created for relationship. You were created for fellowship. To know and to be known. But secondly, this text doesn't say if we walk in the light as he is in the light, you know, we'll have the option of having fellowship with others if we prefer to do so occasionally. It's taken as a given concomitant to having fellowship with God. The expectation is those who are having fellowship with God and walking in the light have fellowship with one another. You don't think you need it? That's not even what the passage is saying. It says you should be about it. Second, I don't like it. I, I, I talked with a woman who's uh, the other day um, uh, who, who said, um, I'm just a private person. I don't like anyone knowing my business. You know all that saying is I don't want someone potentially looking into my life and reacting negatively or holding me accountable. Feel judged, feel shamed. Better to just keep things private in the dark and Keep it between you, me and God, of course. And so it's a form of autonomy. It's not a personality trait. You can't throw shade on my introverts by saying, oh, I'm introverted, relationships aren't for me. Everyone who knows anything about introversion knows that's not true. Relationships are for you. Creating the image of God, relationships are for you. Being known is for you. Koinonia is for you. And last is the most tragic. Here it is. It's just too risky. It's not worth it. I've been burned. And that's the story of some of you sitting here today. Your life, in some cases our church, our history. I had that. Everybody left me. I was betrayed. I got hurt. I'm not going to ante back up. And first I want you to hear, I'm so sorry. I really am. I'm so sorry. I know the faces and the stories, and I get it. But like me, you have a choice to make. Will you pray for the strength and courage 
to walk in the light before God and others in, in fellowship, or, and I know this has bite, I know this sounds potentially harsh, but this is just the reality, so pardon the candor. Will you flounder in isolation and tell people you tried hard, all you need is Jesus, and, being, and be content with living a mediocre Christian life? Will you pray for the strength and courage to walk in the light that leads to fellowship? Or will you flounder in isolation, telling people you tried hard, you need Jesus, it hurt? And be okay with just mailing it in. Brothers and sisters, walk in the light as he is in the light. We'll have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus will cleanse us from all sin. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that because Christ has been the Lord of our shame, that we don't have to bear it ourselves. And I know the hurt and the confusion and how terrifying it is to step out and be known before you, before others. And so I pray that this word would not be ineffective, that it would encourage, that it wouldn't itself bring shame, or if it does, a shame that leads to cleansing because of the blood of Jesus, so that we would be a people who walk in the light, have fellowship with one another.